I'm not a Latino gallery. This is not a feminist gallery. This is not a black gallery. This is about art. So if your art is engaged and you're resolving your efforts, then that's what we're interested in. And we are interested in the African-American community. We are interested in the Latino community. We are interested in, in all the issues, but the artwork needs to stand on its own. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is Art Blog Radio. That was Rennie Molinar you just heard. We are speaking with Rennie Molinar and Rocio Cabello today at their community gallery or community center, sort of, called Imperfect Gallery. The gallery is on Green Street in Germantown. Rennie and his long-term partner, Rocio Cabello, moved to Philadelphia from New York in 2002 and founded Imperfect Gallery in 2012. Rennie studied art at Rutgers and Pratt Institute. And where did you, did you study art? Fashion Institute of Technology and Parsons. Thank you. I went for graphic design. So uh, we would like to know a little bit about yourself. Um, we know you were born in Aruba, is that right? That's right. And you grew up in New Jersey. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? My parents um, divorced when I was um, five and my mother's Dominican, and my dad is Dutch. So we settled in Jersey, in northern New Jersey. I come from a foolish family of artists. <laughs> Wait a minute, foolish? Oh, my, my, mom, my mom's so wonderful. She, she raised us, gave me 100% support, and her dad was a violin. I was the second violin with the National Symphony, and, um, and a writer, and poet, and her, all her aunts, and you know, we come from a family of sculptors and painters, a lot of famous members in the family, a lot of broke members of the family. <laughs> so my mom was like, well, you're welcome to be an artist. You know, you have, she used to call it the family poison. You, you're, you're poisoned. Why don't you get yourself a, like a real career, like an architect or engineer or something that you can make a living with, and then you can be an artist. And so I went to Pratt to be an architect, and I lasted one week. <laughs> <laughs> I realized that I wanted to be the designer. Um, I didn't want to be a draft person. You know, um, again, sat down with my mom's. And she was my main consultant. I discovered that you could make money as a graphic designer. So I re-enrolled as a graphic student at Pratt. And I realized, boring. I'm not going to do that. You know, that's not what I want to do. I, I have this romance of being an artist you know, since I was little. So I, I wasn't ready to give that up. So I threw it all in. I said, well, I'm an artist. And, and I'm, I'm still starving. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rocio, let's ask you a little bit about your background. You're from Peru. I'm from Peru. Tell us when you arrived in I came when I was 15 for a vacation. 15? 15. 15. Uh -huh. And who did you stay? Did you I come with your family? I had one older sister. She was real old, 23, studying at the School of Visual Arts in New York. And my dad said, hey, would you take your brother and sister for a vacation? And she said, sure, I, you know, be with them. And it was exciting for her to show us around and all that. But little did she know that she would become our legal guardian after that vacation. <laughs> well, because when my, my dad gave me the choice to either stay behind or come back to, to Lima, um, my brother and I, we both said, are you kidding me? We're staying. Never looked back. But you also had an uncle. And, yes, and I had one uncle that had a, a 
commercial art studio in New York City. And so he was working from there, and my sister worked with him. So I was under tutelage of him and my sister. And did you all live together? Yes. Yes, we all lived together. So art was the family business for you, too? Yes. Commercial art. The, they were more into commercial art, illustrations, um, advertising design, that kind of thing. I went to Parsons because I wanted to be a graphic designer, and I kept working with them. So I knew I had learned now how to illustrate. Product illustration was our main, the main thing that I did. So I could draw anything that I was handed over by whatever store we were doing ads for. I would just want to, she would never say this, um, but it was J.C. Penney, Macy's, Tonka Track, L'Oreal, major, big, major. Yeah, big they were clients. big clients. It, it, it was the rat race. Wow. They were like, Busy. and her technical skills are off the charts. And I was a workaholic. <laughs> I, yeah, we really did work from morning to night and weekends. If we had to not sleep, that because it was really a rat race. So how did you find your starving inner artist? In the South Bronx. <laughs> so are you going to tell us how you met? <laughs> yes, uh, sure. Well, after I was doing that for a bunch of years, I was in my late 20s, and I started growing bored. Not very excited anymore. I just, plainly, I really did it just for the pay. But I had no other passions. At least I, you know, had buried the passions so deep that I forgot they were even there. I was going out with this musician from Peru who one day said, I'm playing at this gallery in the South Bronx with my group. You want to come with us? And sure. And so we went, and it was his gallery in the South Bronx. And he was inviting You mean, you mean Rennie's gallery? And I mean, yes, yes. I went to his gallery, the black and white in color gallery, and I realized there was a clique of friends that grew out of that gallery because of the way that he was programming. He was bringing in street musicians and just, I had never seen such a, um, there is no style. Everything is mixed in a pot, you know, the, he eclectic. had, eclectic, that's the word I was looking for, an eclectic mix of things and it was very exciting and we became friends, We there was a little clique of people that really were the motor of, turned into a motor for that gallery. And I became one of them. Then a couple of, a year later, I broke up with the guy and he broke up with his wife. The rest is history. <laughs> we had the, the big sit down talk. Yeah, that's like, right. This is not, this is just to have fun. We were just gonna play. I just broke up with my wife and I was like, and I just broke up with my guy, I mean, no mood for a relationship. So we're gonna be, let's have some sex and fun and <laughs> 23 years later? Yeah, two kids and 20 something years later we're still, <laughs> still having fun? The best talk we yeah. ever had, yeah. <laughs> um, I left everything and I moved into a place with no heat, no electricity, no nothing. <laughs> My family thought I was crazy. I was. <laughs> and it was with him that I started really it gave me the time the overhead became almost zero i didn't have to constantly be making money because i could now have time to think what do i want to do really 
now I had time to really go in and figure it out because I never took time to figure it out. I rediscovered by helping take over an empty lot that all the artists from that building had taken over an empty lot to transform it into a garden. I'm walking one day in there helping out after a rain and I smell wet soil. That smell is so familiar to me, but this has been years since I smelled that smell before. So I started remembering, when did I, and I remember getting on my knees and smelling and thinking, my childhood. It brought back memories of being a kid, helping my dad plant our vegetables, harvest our vegetables, which I had not done since I was 10. And that smell is what brought it all back. So I started saying, hey, I know how to do this. I remember now. And, and I started remembering as I was doing it. I started remembering that I used to do this as a kid, but I totally forgot. My mother's death really, it really. You were seven. When did she die? How old were you? I was 14. She was 43, and she went in for a tonsillectomy and never came out. And it was supposed to be a walking visit. You know, you're not staying in the hospital, you go in and out. And you, when we left for school, she said, I'll see you when you come back, I'll be back here. And when we came back, she wasn't home. And we were like, oh, she said she was gonna come back. And anyway, it really, when we moved, we kind of buried all of that. It was so painful that it was easier to, to bury it, to not think about it, not remember it. So it wasn't until I was in my 30s where I started revisiting and remembering all the things that I used to do for fun, for... Um, then I st he starts doing workshops with children. He comes home one day with all of these tools and supplies to do beading, to bead. Again, it happens. I said, I, I used to do beading when I was a kid. My dad built me a loom and I used to do with those thick bracelets and my whole family had bracelets for me when I was a kid because I was yeah we did the basics you know I, I thought like real we, we just call it wearable art and we do like the, the simplest cool stuff she comes along and all these memories flood her and she has skills she has all these things that I had all these abilities <laughs> I had totally forgotten about that and I have forgotten how much I loved doing that you know when you're a kid and you get lost doing something for hours and hours? Well, that's what I did. I beat it, and I did crafty things. My, my, I had aunts who were very good at making things, and they would always teach me, and then I was making things. Um, but I had totally buried that whole side of me. It's only with him that I started remembering, and suddenly all these things that I started remembering became really important, and I didn't want to do the other stuff anymore. So let's talk about that gallery in the Bronx then, because it seems to have some similarities to what you're doing yeah. at Imperfect Gallery here. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what was the idea of the gallery? It was called Black and White in Color. Black and White in Color. Similar premise is, is sort of a political drive. Um, I was disenchanted with politics. Um, you know, I was, very, I was an activist, borderline revolutionary. And is that possible? Borderline revolutionary? <laughs> right, that's just a, a, a safe way of talking, I guess. But that, that was the... Um... The walls have <laughs> Are you going to really say everything? The, um, no, I, I was really 
I really believe in that whole what what the 20th century ideology of like well to change society I was into justice social justice and correcting the, the many wrongs in society so I, I was I was convinced by the revolutionary ethos that um, by forcing a change you can implement idealism you can you can put in the structure that you you see as the way out of this horrible reality I'm definitely blacklisted you know I'm, I've been quoted in Congress but that, that happened later you were arrested a few times <laughs> it's been a mess um, but I realized at one point that the armed revolution was only would only get you so much and then every revolution that I was looking at it stopped being about the causes that led us to become revolutionaries and it became about how do you uphold the revolution? So the, the issues were like, well, we'll deal with that later. We have to protect what we've gained. So you wind up with the with dictatorships. My grandfather was assassinated by a dictator. And when I realized that I'm supporting the future dictators and the kids in Cuba, for instance, were lining up and dressing in, in Mao-like fashion and that the revolution meant in the, at that point, and still somewhat does, that we all had to behave the same way. There was always half the population were evil and half were supposedly good. And I didn't buy into that. Um, so I, that's when I went to work with children. That's when I started this, you know, getting involved in the housing movement, defending the, the homeless, creating homes. Um, and, I, and I then decided that children were the best way for me to connect. I can connect to the children, and, and I realized that I'm just, I was a teaching artist, so I was never a classroom teacher. And I had a classroom teacher, a veteran, 30 years, 35 years in the, in the industry, and I was sort of frustrated because I wanted to like, I was so committed. I wanted every kid to rise, and it didn't, doesn't work that way. And she was like, my God, you are the most successful teacher in here. If you can, if you touch one heart per year, you should, you should applaud yourself. You should consider that success. And that really gave me pause. And, and I thought about it and how, and what that meant. And I was like, okay, I'm doing three or four. <laughs> 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 so the gallery comes out of that, out of how, okay, how do I take my, my concerns with all the issues, the things that shouldn't be the way they are. There shouldn't be abuse. Um, and there shouldn't be unfairness, and you know. So I'm still very romantic. Um, I hate using the word romantic because I think it's it's real. You know, the people shouldn't be abused. The corporate world they should exist, but they shouldn't rip off poor people. You know, <laughs> you rip off rich people, you get locked up. You rip off poor people, you get a promotion. Um, so, <laughs> so the gallery was a, a way of organizing. It was a way of 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 being able to have my passions, my commitment to art, my ongoing engagement, and make it count. And, um, and in that space, we facilitated meetings, we fac just like we do now. We did music, we did film, we did, you know, so we, we, um, we help people accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. So um, why did you move your gallery 
because basically you have moved it. You are your gallery, the two of you, and you decided to move it from the Bronx to Philadelphia. What? Well, I had to shut down. Um, mm -hmm. It became too successful, and I freaked out. I mean, Andy Warhol came in, but a big, you know, I mean, we, we New York Times, we were on TV, Congress. We are one of the reasons, but Andres Arano, but Maple Thorpe, Richard Serra, but we were the reasons why the NEA should not be funded. Twice! Um, so we, we create, we, we produced a show with Ron English and, Dawn, and, and, and Sean Eichmann called the Jesse Helms Degenerate Art Show, based on Hitler's Degenerate Art Show. And we sent Jesse Helms an invite. But um, I came to do a residency at the Fabric Workshop, and as I fabricated my piece. And then we started to see the, the rentals. We were paying $2,000 rent in Williamsburg. Um, you know, I was teaching like nine days a week. Um, <laughs> and, and then we, we find out this, this Lofts, you can get a whole loft here for $600. And we actually, um, I decided I needed to keep teaching in New York. So we were looking all over to all these different neighborhoods. And then we connected with Miriam Soto and Pepon Osorio. And they let us stay say, in there. hey, come and check out we were studio. Northwest. Because we checked all the downtown area. We went to South Philly. We went to West we Philly. We love South Philly. We thought South Philly was the coolest. Um, we love West Philly. It was interesting. But when we found this, it was like it was, it, the right architecture, the right prices. They had trees. They had garden. We could do gardening. Oh, my gosh. That, um, that was that what won me over, really, the greenery in this area. We said, okay, this is where we're staying. And the R7. And the R7, yes. <laughs> that was a major. <laughs> I mean, that's how we looked for a place. We looked with the map, and we knew exactly where the line of the R7 runs. So Whatever we found, whether it was a school or, or house, had to be near that route so that we could get, so that he could get back to New York. And are you still there in no. New York? No. No, no, we burned out. Because I was doing, I have three, I have multiple careers. I'm an artist, I'm an educator, curator. So I decided, well, I can't do it all. So I need to choose. So I wanted to stop teaching 25 years worth. I thought I'd pay my dues. And I had this, this fantasy that this time around, I, was, I got this. I'm going to be able to do the gallery without it eating away at my studio. Of course, it didn't work. <laughs> it takes up That's all That's what happened with time. the first one. When mm -hmm. he, he became very successful culturally, and people started paying attention. And then we started getting grants, and then bigger grants. And then, but then you had to, he had to decide, is this really going to be the, my track? We didn't have time for our artwork anymore. And I saw all my colleagues. I saw Gina Rodriguez, Marcia Tucker, you know, all, all, you know, every great art, alternative art institution in New York was created and run by an artist. I used to be a photographer. I used to be a sculptor. I used, and that started to really get on my nerves and I freaked out. I got invited to go to Skowhegan and I went shaved my hair off, started doing mushrooms out there. <laughs> and then he came back and he said, okay, 
I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> Forget about the gallery. <laughs> but it sounds like you're very much on the same track. You're you're looking for nonprofit status. You're trying to figure out how you're going to bring money into the gallery. I wish I was back so. at that point again, right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, you also said you're now embracing the role of the gallerist slash community organizer as part of your as art. The work as itself. the work itself. And that's, that's becoming really significant because that's part of what the reason I wanted to get out of teaching. So I was working with kids, with, with um, school age kids. And there was a certain, and I was a hit and run kind of person. I was a teaching artist. I went in and did eight workshops, 12, whatever the contract was. And in the inner city, um, it's not like my kids go to Quaker schools and you go in there and you ask attention. You get 100% attention. We're going to do this, kids. Everybody's ready for it. You know, in, in, in the ghetto, in the inner city, <laughs> it's like, um, take out your pencils. You're throwing it around. You know, it's like, so the, big, the, the, the first task in teaching in the inner city is winning over the kids. And that takes time. While, while nourishing the work. Um, and then you finally got them. They're all like, they want to be, they want to grow up to be artists. Or, you know, they get to that point where, like, they love you. They want to be artists. And you're like, bye. I'm out of here. Good luck with that. I'm off to my next contract. I hope they pay me in the next two months. You know, that kind of, um, and that really bothered me. I, I wanted to, so when, initially, I was, I was going to go ahead and open a school. Right, we, we were actually trying just, to open a school here. Just in so, Philadelphia. Yeah, mm -hmm. Just so that I can be consequential. So we could have continuity. And really take a kid and save their lives. So So what happened to the idea of the school here in Philly? I realized it was it was it was suicide. Um, in terms of my work, it it was it was way more commitment to make it work. Um, then I had the, the will to invest. Um, How are you funding the gallery now before you're a nonprofit? Our, are there sales? We have a, our, our business plan. <laughs> <laughs> our famous business. Beg, borrow, and steal? Yeah. <laughs> it's beg, borrow, and steal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> People were even telling us, why do you want to do an art gallery here? This is the, you're, there's no Germantown, public here. Everybody goes downtown for that stuff. And we said, well, yeah, but if, that's because there's nothing around here. If we had something around here, then we, you guys wouldn't have to get in your car and drive 20 minutes to. Right, there was so one other gallery that existed before, up on, on the avenue, but it was more like the, the classic art store. You know, it was an Afrocentric place and anything that had um, the iconography that, that, that fulfilled that mission was acceptable. And I don't, I don't buy that. You know, it's like, I'm not a Latino gallery. This is not a feminist gallery. This is not a black gallery. This is about art. So if your art is, is engaged and you're resolving your efforts, then that's what we're interested in. And we are interested in, 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 in the African-American community. We are interested in the Latino community. We are interested in, in all the issues. But the artwork needs to stand on its own. I don't want anybody wagging their finger at me um, with their illustrations. Now, I want issues. Can you, can you bring that issue through with your art? And it's easy for me because I do know 
that artists can do that. So part of my role is to teach, to, to, to educate the community that yes, art is viable, art can communicate serious political and profound issues. And I look for that, I look for that. How can we have kids respect art? How can we have professionals respect art? And it's okay to decorate. Art does a great job in decorating, but can art also communicate? And that's what we look for. And on that note, which is a wonderful note, I think we'll end. Thank you so much. We've been speaking Thank with you. Rennie Molinar and Rocio Cabello at Imperfect Gallery. It was Thank wonderful. You Thank Thank you. Was you wonderful. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.